Being a launch copywriter is not the easiest thing in the world. You've got to understand launch strategy, be able to write sales pages and emails, maybe even write webinar scripts, Facebook and Google or YouTube ads, and more, and often even just support your client through the launch experience, which can be a roller coaster at times. It's the kind of work that can easily lead to burnout if you're not careful. Our guest for the 239th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is former Think Tank member Christina Shands. She joined us to talk all about the work involved with writing and strategizing for launches, and she talked about ways to make launches more enjoyable too. So before we get to our interview with Christina, we want to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank. This is something we've been talking about quite a bit recently, and if you're tired of hearing us promote the Think Tank, maybe just visit copywriterthinktank.com and find out what it's all about. Uh, it is our private mastermind for copywriters and other marketers who want to challenge each other, create new streams of revenue in their business, that, to receive coaching from the two of us, and ultimately grow your business to you know, six figures or find more time for the things that you value, whatever your goals are, it's designed to help you reach them. If you've been looking for a mastermind to help you grow as a copywriter or as a business owner, Again, visit copywriterthinktank.com to find out more. Yeah, and we're not going to stop talking about it anytime soon. So, <laughs> sorry. Um, okay, so let's jump into our conversation with Christina, as we usually do, with her story. The roundabout way is how I got here. So I spent a lot of time in college just doing random stuff. And then I discovered this thing called public relations. And I figured out I could write pretty well. So I got a degree in public relations, I worked for nonprofits. Um, and then one day I came in and my boss said, our grant isn't approved for next year. You're the only person that uh, I can let go and sorry. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I spent a year working with um, other fundraising coaches. I wrote, worked as a grant writer I taught fundraising to local nonprofits, and then I worked with graphic designers, and um, I have I had some friends that owned a web company, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I could write. Like, I still, at this point, didn't know what copywriting was. I just knew I could write scripts, so I could write stuff. Had no direction whatsoever, um, and then ended up finding out what internet marketing was and sort of got into that world, studied... Um, with like, you know, some of the first, uh, Frank Kern, sort of those types of copywriter, those types of like internet marketers, and then became a VA, discovered launching, um, from a client, uh, came into her company as a junior copywriter. And that was when I was like, Oh wait, there's a science behind copywriting. It's not just like writing words randomly and asking someone to do something. There's actually like a formula and science and metrics and things that I can actually study and then from there, it became a really like dive into what it takes to be a real copywriter, how to become a better copywriter about storytelling. And because the, my client was doing lots of launches, I just got to study with her um, and watch her, her team do launches. From there, I just sort of went on and started working with other friends and um, coaches and um and sort of like found my way <laughs> through the maze of just being really lucky to get really great referrals and sort of learning as I go and studying and then found my way here. 
long story short, I happened into it and I'm really glad I did. So Christina, I'm curious, like going back to PR days, fundraising days, like when you started mentioning that, I'm like, okay, how do you fundraise? Like, what are the secrets to fundraising? Because like when you're offering somebody a product to sell or to buy, like, obviously I'm going to give you money and I'm going to get something in, in return. But with fundraising, you're, I'm going to give you money and maybe I'm going to get a few like nice feelings in return or what, like, how do you make that work and be successful? Tell it, like spill the secrets. It is absolutely the same thing. It's all about a feeling. So you think we're selling a product and you're not, you're selling a solution. So as a fundraiser, and I work for environmental companies in a state that's not known for environmental friendliness. So, you know, I worked with clean energy and clean water groups. And so, you know, try selling clean water to um, someone who is in a state where we've got tons of rain and dams and lakes that we can swim in year round. Not year round, it's, it gets cold here, but um, it's all about a feeling. It's all about selling a promise, selling the future, selling an emotion, getting them to see that they can be part of a solution instead of part of the problem. So, um, you know, how I nurtured and cultivated and solicited a major donor is how I do the same for one-on-one clients. And I really need to sit down and sort of map it out because there was a system that we used in fundraising that directly correlates to prospecting. And it's a really beautiful, you know, sort of nurturing, um, proactive system. But when you're selling in fundraising, you're selling a solution. You're selling, you know, being part of a community that cares it was a lot easier when I worked for a nonprofit that um, rescued bear cubs. So it was really fun because we just got to put like cute bear cubs on picture <laughs> envelopes and then say like, hey, give us money. The bears are hungry and the people would send us money. Um, you know, putting a picture of a dirty stream and saying, hey, you know, we need to clean up the stream. It was a little harder. Um, but also getting really creative, getting to know people. Like I spent a lot of time on the phone with people, on the phone listening to like, do they have kids in the background? Um, where are they showing up in the newspaper? What other nonprofits do they support? Um, what is their future? What do they want? Like I'm really getting to know them. It's the same thing as like, you know, when you're looking for one-on-one clients, you really get to know your clients. And before you even present a solution to them, you have an idea of how you want to work with them. And same thing with major donors. So it's it's a really, really fun place to be in. It's just um, the mindset of nonprofit work is very difficult because they think it's a scarcity. Uh, there's only a limited pot of money and sacri- lots of sacrificing, which is not always the easiest, but it's a really great place to be. So Christina, how long have you been a copywriter now? As you're sharing your story, I couldn't tell if it's like it's been a decade of copywriting in your, for your own business or if it's been a couple of years. I've been on my own since... 2009. Uh, As a copywriter, I would probably say seven years, like actually knowing what copywriting is. Um, And then actually like claiming a launch copywriter and that I know what I'm doing. I'd say like three years. Like I just, there's different, you know, evolutions of like the confidence level. Um, But actively studying it, actively like going and putting myself in situations where I have to get better, you know, three or four years. Um, Yeah. But I've been trying to do this entrepreneur thing for a long time. So I'm just now starting to hit my stride as an entrepreneur, which is what you don't really learn when you first start out, how to pay taxes, how to 
set up business entity, like that stuff I struggled with for a long time. So Christina, let's talk about launching because this is what your, your expertise is in. Can you share with us how the launch space has changed over the last, at least the last three years that you've been focused on it, how it's evolved and um, almost like a, a state of the union on launching? Yeah, absolutely. I think for launches, it's really come, you know, there, there were just a few ways to launch at first. So you had like your teleseminars, you had your telesummits. And you had your product launch formulas sort of model. And then now you've got like your five-day challenges, your webinars, you've got your training series, you've got more advanced summits. So things have sort of progressed, but it all comes down to launching in a way that is good for you and how you want to show up and how your clients want you to show up. It's all about building relationships. Like none of that's changed. It's just how the technology's changed. I'm sure that people are going to be launching using Clubhouse and TikTok and, you know, we've got chatbots and all of that. And it all comes down to what you're comfortable, how you're comfortable showing up and selling, what your strengths are and what you have the resources to handle. So the how of launching may have changed over the years, but what you're actually doing hasn't changed at all. It's still building a relationship creating a transformational experience, asking them to say yes. That will never change when it comes to you know a launch process. How do we know what's good for us when we're launching? And maybe this is also a question for when we're working with clients too, and we're coming in and working on the launch strategy with a client. How do we start from the beginning to think about like, well, what is really good for this particular client? And maybe even like, what is good for me too as the person assisting this client? Yeah, I think it starts with what are their strengths? So what are they really, really great at doing? And then what is the promise that they're selling? So, you know, if you're selling a high-end coaching program and all you're doing is teaching, but the teaching isn't part of the coaching program, that might not be the best way for people to really um, feel and see how it would be like to work with you. Um, and on the other side of it is, is if you really, really hate video, but you're being pushed into doing a three-part video series with, and then selling on video, you're going to show up really inauthentic and it's going to be really painful to watch. I just had a client go through that where she did a beautiful webinar and then it came to selling and it was so bad that like two minutes in, I was like, okay, plan B. <laughs> like we, we already knew that it was, she wasn't going to sell anything because it was that painful. She just wasn't comfortable doing it. So if I had known that she wasn't comfortable doing it, we would have either practiced um, or we would have found a different way to, to do that piece of the, the sales process. So getting to know um, what resources they have, how they like to teach, what they're really good at. Or, you know, if, if you're a great coach, then coach. If you're a great teacher, then teach. If you're a really great uh, motivator and inspirational speaker, do that, you know, so do what really is great for, um, for who you are and how you want to show up. I use also things like human design, uh, fast, you know, I look at the fascinate test Colby. Like I'll look at a lot of the personality tests as a lot of strategists, because I want to know a little bit more about how they work. I want to know like how I can support them. I want to know um, their love language, like how do they, you know, how do I need to hold space for them? Because launching is really difficult energetically. It's a, 
it's a mind warp sometimes because it can be really stressful and it sort of, it overtakes your entire business. So if you're doing something, if you've got a strategy that you don't love or that doesn't fully support you or that you're not fully resourced to handle, you're going to have a really difficult launch. And the last thing you want is to be exhausted by the end of your launch and not be able to serve the people that said yes, because the launch is only the beginning of what you actually have to do, that you have to deliver what you promised, what people paid you for. So, you know, what the strategy is, it's, you know, where's your audience right now? What do they need? Um, what are you capable of delivering? How do you best show up and, and create a transformational experience for them? Once you sort of know those pieces, you can map out what that launch looks like. I have to say the simpler, the better. Like I just looked at a launch strategy that was literally two months long and it was like, I don't know, 50 or 60 emails before we said, Hey, do you want to join us? Like it was going to be that complex. And I just kept saying, do we have to do a summit and a challenge and a webinar series and a masterclass? And like, do we have to do all of this? Um, and, uh, my, and my answer is no, we don't. And their answer is yes, we have to, because they've got, they're getting advice from someone else. I'm just like, oh, you're going to burn out your team. You're going to stress everyone out. You're going to disengage your community if you don't do it properly. And so I'm really trying to like get them to see a different way of doing it. Um, uh, and also knowing that most of those resources are not a really great fit for how she shows up. So it can be a struggle as a copywriter or as a strategist to, you know, if they're being told by someone else or if they've seen someone else have a really successful launch and they want to do it that way, sometimes you just, all you can do is support them um, and provide really great copy and hold really great you know, support space for them and then just let it unfold the way it's going to unfold. Yeah, I want to, I definitely want to see what that two month long launch looks like because that sounds totally crazy to me, but. Very interesting too. So we did something sort of similar um, in the fall. And literally by the end of Christmas, we were like the team was about to like, you know, hit the deck. We were all exhausted. Um, at this point, I had written you know, like three sales pages, opt-in pages. I had written so much and I'm starting to get mad because I like am way outside my boundaries of what my proposal said. And I'm just like, oh, I'm way outside of scope. Um, which makes me mad at myself because that's a struggle I have. Um, but, you know, her community, she didn't sell anything extra for doing all of that. So it was like we could have really made it simple. And I think especially if you're a new launcher, uh, the simpler, the better, uh, the faster you can get them from where they are now to where they need to be to say yes. The, and, and ask them, the, the easier it's going to be, the more fun it's going to be, the more... Um, on board, your community is going to be as well. Cool. So I may be asking the same question that uh, Kira just asked, but maybe in a different way. Is the kind of launch that you run always dependent on the person who's running it? Or is there ever a default where you're thinking, okay, uh, you're selling a course, you know, it's at the this price, it's at a $1,500 price point. So for that one, we should definitely do a four video PLF style launch. Or, you know, this is your first thing, it's a beta, we should do kind of a soft launch or, you know, a stealth launch, something like that, you know, or uh, you're in a Facebook group. And so we should definitely start with a webinar. Like, is there anything that 
that you would look at the product and say, actually, this product lends itself more to this type of launch, or is it always based off of the person and the personalities behind whatever it is that you're selling? Yeah, it's a good combination. So like I wouldn't uh, put in a launch strategy for a hundred dollar product that could, that could, that's really, really long, unless there's a really great upsell, unless there's a, another reason we would want to go through all that cultivation. Uh, if there's something else down the line, this is the first step. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm working with first time launchers and maybe they've got like a VA. Um, maybe this is the first or second time they've launched this product. So we don't have a lot of success uh, or a lot of testimonials or a lot of proof that this is actually something that's needed. So I do always look at, you know, what is the product? How um, mature is it? How much uh, feedback have we gotten? How much success? Because what I notice and one of the mistakes I see are, you know, people going straight to market with a product and going all in and it's not even tested. We don't even know if it's something that's needed or if the if they even like teaching it or if it's something that's even needed or if the results that they say they're going to get are actually happen at the end because they're not tracking it or they're not having they don't have some mechanism in place to get people to show up for all of the the webinars and all the trainings and come out on the other side of the transformation, you know, complete. Um and, and, but yet they want to turn it into an evergreen and it's not even tested yet. So I'm just like, okay, well, can we just see if it works? If, you know, if it's something that's super simple or something where the point of, you know, they're, they're, the point of awareness to consideration decision is pretty short, then a webinar might be able to sell it. If they're really great at selling on a webinar. Um, if it's something where, you know, we can move them through their process in five days and a five day challenge, it really depends on, where their community is, where, how well they sell the maturity of the product, and then sort of what, how they like to show up. I, I look at all of those. Um, and, you know, what works, works. PLF works, the three-part video series, the sideways sales letter, you know, those work. Um, they just don't work for everyone. So I always like to give people a chance to make it their own. But there's, you know, you've got to move people through the decision-making process. And there's no shortcutting it. You can't assume that you know your audience so well that if you just put it out there, they're going to say yes. And you also can't assume that they need two months to say to get to a point where they're ready to say yes. So it's a lot of just, um, you know, we've got the formulas. We sort of know what's out there. Um, and there's also a, a chance to like really see what's different. I had a client who's a great coach and she really didn't want to launch but she needed to fill up her one-on-one program. So we did um, a month of group coaching and she loved it. And she ended up not filling her one-on-one clients, but she ended up doing a group coaching program instead. And she loved it. So if we had done a webinar into one-on-one, she might've gotten one or two people. Instead, she got seven people to go into a group coaching program. So a little bit less money, but they a little less time too, because they were a small group that she could move through and then sell them into one-on-one coaching. Yeah. And also I think about like, what are the numbers they need to hit? If someone's like, I want to have a hundred thousand dollar launch, but I only have room for five new one-on-one clients and there it's a $5,000 pro- product that doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, or if there's a mental or like a mindset part to the money piece, you know, having a, having a $20,000 launch could change someone's life. Having a hundred thousand dollar launch really changes their life. That's a lot of money to come in. There's mindset stuff that goes with it. Um, and there's also like numbers don't lie. You know, if you want to have, if you want to sell a hundred people into a program, you need to have, 
you know, 400 people, depending on your conversion rate. Like there's the numbers you have to stack up and, um, and to tell someone, oh, well, you need to get in front of 10,000 people. If that's the number could freak them out. So I always am very aware of like, if I tell them these numbers, how will they react? <laughs> and, and what are they comfortable with? What's a small stretch? And then can we do that? Let's create a plan around sort of what that looks like. Let's talk about the decision-making process. So let's just say like Rob and I are focused on launching a new product or, or something. Um, how should we think about the decision-making process as we're mapping out our own launch um, so that we can be more successful? Are there certain questions we should ask ourselves or certain ways we should think about it? Yeah, I always um, think about it through the lens of your client transformational journey. Uh, in the first part of it, which is where are they now? So where does your community now? Um, and where do they need to be in order to say yes? And so the questions to ask are um, what do they need to know? What do they need to do? And what do they need to believe in order to get to yes? So what do they need to know about themselves, about their own situation, about their business, about their goals, about what they want to create? What do they need to know about you? about your solution, about how you teach, how you show up. Uh, what do they need to know about your product, your offer, the benefits, the outcomes? Like what, like what do they need to know? And then what do they need to believe, which is different because what do they need to believe in their heart about themselves? You know, they really have to believe that they can accomplish this or they're not going to be, if they're a yes, that they don't believe they can do it, they're just not going to finish the program. Um, and maybe they stop paying for the program or maybe they, they just drop out and want their money back. Um, you know, so what do they need to know? What do they need to believe about themselves? What do they need to believe about you? What do they need to believe about the product? And then what do they need to do? And that is a, a, a step like, do, is, do they need a list before they say yes? Do they need to change their mindset? Do they need to already have a product created? Do they need to have a certain level of experience? Do they need to get permission from someone? So are there things they need to actually do? before they're ready to say yes to your offer. And once you sort of mapped out that piece of it, that's sort of your launch roadmap or your launch story. So every single piece that gets them closer to saying yes is content. It's part of your webinar. It's maybe Facebook ads. It's, but it's, you know, maybe it's a free offer. Maybe it's the, the training series. But once you're really clear about what, what gets them from where they are to yes, you, you give them all of that. That's your launch. And that's knowing that is, is really key to having a successful launch. So I want to see if we can make this like really practical or, or take an example of how you would walk through those steps. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to think of like a product where you could, you know, show us like, okay, what do you know, what does it mean when you say, what do they have to know? Like, what's an example? So can we take like the think tank, which I know you're familiar with the think tank as a product. It's one of our products. I, if this doesn't work, we can choose something else, but like, let's, let's ask some of those questions and like figure out like, what are those, those, um, steps that we would go through so that we can just make this really tangible. Yeah. So, so you've got, um, your ideal clients for the think tank and where they are now. So where are they now as far as where are they in their business? What are they struggling with? Um, what do they desire? And then, and then it goes back to what do they need to know about themselves? What do they need to know about what they want their um, copywriting future to look like? What, if, what do they need to know about what um, they want their copywriting business? They have to have some sort of like future 
in copywriting to, to make the investment in think tank. So they've got to sort of know. And if they don't know, these are the questions you ask them. These are the questions that you, you know, that you put handouts for, or you do a, a training around. So it's, they, they get to know themselves a little bit better and about what they, the future that they want. And then they have to start believing in themselves. Can't, do they believe that they can do it? Do they believe that you can get them to the other side? Do they believe that the think tank is the right vehicle to get them to where they want to be? Um, do they believe they, they are capable of, of showing up? Because one of the things that I made a, a commitment to myself when I said yes to the think tank was I'm going to show up and I'm going to do the work. And that was my commitment. And once I believed it in my soul that that, well, that I was going to be, that I was going to show up and that I was going to be a yes, I was in. That was the moment that I was just like, okay, it's a yes. I was in my backyard with my dogs. <laughs> I was just like, all right, okay. Once I believed it, but I had to believe it and I had to believe in myself first. So I believed in you and, and Kara. I believe in you guys, but it was me that was holding back. So um, what do, and then what do they need to know? Like, what do they need to know about the logistics or what do they need to know about if they don't, if this isn't the option? So, you know, these are the sort of the questions. I don't know if that helps make it a little bit more tangible, but some of it is onus on them in their own internal transformation. Yeah. So maybe take another example. So, you know, let's say that I'm selling, we're selling a course on, um, I don't know, you know, how to, how to use, how to use some technology, Microsoft Word or something. I would need to like, there's, there's a what an information stage where it's like, I need to know how Microsoft Word is going to help me in my business, or it's going to help me achieve some transformation in my business. That's the information no stage. Then there's, then there's this um, belief feeling stage where I need to create a belief in myself that this is the tool. This is the thing that's going to actually teach me what I need to know. And then I've got to be able to see the transformation and, and it's got to be really clear what the next step is to purchase. That's, that's the process. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm kind of being dumb here, but yeah, just like trying to work. No, that's perfect. And the, yeah. And then the do part is, is like, if I'm going to use Microsoft Word, do I need to go buy a PC? Or do I need to, you know, there, there's a do part to that as well, because you're not able to use um, Microsoft Word on, you know, an iPad. So there's a doing component as well. So if you're selling to someone who is always, you know, that is uh, a Mac user, then is that, are you selling something that's different than someone to a PC user? So like, there's something they need to do. Not so much anymore, because you can use, you know, Microsoft on everything, but um, that's the doing part. So so for some people, like say you're selling a... Um, a course on, you know, on creating courses. Um, one of the precursors may be that they need to believe that they uh, can um, make money selling courses or that they're capable of, of having enough information and enough and information and enough belief in themselves to sell courses. But one of the things they have to have before they can sell a course is they have to um, have a list. So is, a, is growing the list part of your pre-launch? Is it part of your launch? Is it a, a product you sell before you sell the course um, pro product? Um, it, so, like, you know, they and they have to have maybe if I'm selling something that's like more advanced launch uh, course or something, then um, they have to have a team. So what I teach them how to hire a VA, how to hire a launch manager, how to hire a copywriter. So like those are things I would need to do before they're ready for something more advanced. So being aware of all of the pieces in your launch helps you figure out what you need to move them through. And 
And, you know, launch is just a transformational process. It's to get them from where they are now to where they want to be. And that's that sort of transformation is your promise to them. Whether they say yes to your product or not, by the end of the launch, they would have changed. They're in a better place. They're in a place where they can have the They're closer to the success they want than they were before the launch started. So there's no reason to launch something and then not give. I mean, we've been part of launches where you didn't get a single thing out of it. And it's just like, why? And if I have to live through another one of those launches, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, cut out of the list. So you want your launches to sort of be beneficial, whether they say yes or not. Let's break in here to talk a little bit about some of the things that Christina was uh, mentioning as we were uh, talking about this with her. And so let's start, I, I want to start, I think, with love languages, because that's kind of an interesting concept to me. It's, uh, you know, it's a little bit, um, I don't know, it's a little bit woo, uh, which is the space that Christina plays around in with. But, uh, you know, love language is an interesting thing to bring to the launch conversation as you think about how do you support your clients in all of the stressful stuff that's going on during a, a launch. So uh, I don't know if you've got thoughts about love languages in particular or about, you know, whether they're appropriate, but I'm curious, Kira, what is your love language? <laughs> you know, I am a little bit more woo than you. And so you would think I would know my love language, but I haven't actually, I haven't figured it out. Um, I know it seems like the five are it's words of affirmation or acts of service, doing helpful things for your partner, receiving gifts, giving gifts, quality time or physical touch. So <laughs> I'm like, I want all of it. This is kind of my problem in life. I, I don't want to choose. Like I like all of it. I don't want to say I'm one or the other. I know there's like a test you can take and I'm sure I could figure out which one I am. And maybe we, you know, maybe we can figure out, uh, each other's love languages in the business sense, since we aren't physically touching each other. and But we do spend quality time together and we do send each other gifts. And so um, I guess all I'd say, I don't know what it is. I'm a little curious, but I also like, I don't want to just choose one. I want all of it. So that's that's how I feel about it. What about for you? What? How do you like to receive your love? As I as I go through those five things, I'm definitely a words of affirmation uh, person. I think you know, like you know me, I'm I'm a side hugger. I don't really love being touched. Oh yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. Um, gifts, you know, gifts are fun, but um, I don't get jazzed about them. You know, it's it's cool when somebody sends a gift, and I'm like, oh, that's you know that that's really thoughtful or whatever. But that's uh, I think I like I like praise um, or you know respect that kind of thing. So that's I think that's where I lean. But I, I do think this is really interesting to think about your clients and you know their love languages. I don't know if it's worth you know having a client take a test for that, but if you can identify, oh yeah, clients love gifts or clients really like words of affirmation or you know if you're in a proximity uh, you know and you can actually get together with your client, giving them a hug when things get tough. I, I just, it's an interesting approach and something I've never really considered uh, in my work with my clients that Christina talked about. Yeah, that's interesting. And maybe it's quality time. I do, you know, I do appreciate quality time. So it's good to know about you because I will never send you a gift again and I will just send <laughs> words of affirmation and tell you how cool you are. Maybe I should do that more frequently via text message. I don't do that enough. It's all good. It's all good. So, okay. So we also talked really in depth about launches and this is not something that I do a ton of, uh, you know, I've, I've done some things around launches, uh, and my work, you know, in health and wellness, occasionally clients are launching new products or whatever, but the launch space, particularly, you know, as we think about it in internet 
marketing is very different from, you know, launching something in SaaS or even, you know, a physical product in the health and wellness space. So maybe Kira, you can talk a little bit about launches and, you know, the boundaries that are required in launches, because this stuff can really get out of control. Yeah. I mean, I kind of fell into launches and then I've worked on a bunch for clients and then more recently focusing more on our TCC launches. So um, I think if you're going into the launch space, it tends to be kind of like a a sexier space in the copywriting space where it's exciting. Um, I think it's also exciting because you can see the direct impact that you can make on a launch really quickly um, within a matter of a couple days. And also it is attached to, it can be attached to uh, a good amount of revenue for your clients. So it's, it's somewhat easier to charge more for launch packages, maybe compared to some other packages out there. You could probably argue that either way. So I think the launch space can be really fun. It's a great way to learn a conversion copy and experiment because it's constantly changing. I mean, there are core principles at work, but it's also it's, it's a great place to experiment if you like to experiment. I think it's also a great way for copywriters to put on their consultant hat or you know the problem-solving strategy hat if you feel like you want to dabble in that space and you haven't really been able to with previous projects. When you jump into the launch space – Typically, clients are very open to direction and strategy. Even if they've launched before, they're overwhelmed because there's so many things they have to do. And they would love an insider on their team, not just to write the copy, but to provide guidance and suggestions and come up with a game plan. And so there's a lot of opportunities to do more than just writing copy, if that's what's of interest to you. I think the part to be careful about, like you already mentioned, is just it's you get burnout is really high, especially if you work on several launches. Um, clients can tend to lean on you a little bit more than they might with other projects because it's so it can be so stressful for them. Oftentimes, they're putting out a lot of money on ads, and they want to see that return. And so it's just it's also feels very, especially if it's a personality brand launching a product, it it's, feels very tied to their own identity, and so. Uh, failures are harder to take. So there's also this emotional side of it that if you can nurture your clients and kind of help them throughout um, and you enjoy that, there's great benefits for you. But if if you just kind of want to get in and do your thing and then get out when they launch it, I think you just need to be really clear about what role you want to play in a launch before you start to create your packages and sell them because there's so many different ways you can do it. But if you aren't intentional and if you don't set those rules for yourself, you you just may be it may be a painful experience. So it's just worth thinking through how do you want to work on launches? What's best for you? And where can you add the most value for your clients? Yeah. Like I said, I don't have a ton of experience other than you know when we have launched, but it does seem to me that there, the real opportunity here or one of the pitfalls is you know around boundaries is because a client is paying you say ten thousand dollars or maybe thirty thousand dollars or even fifty thousand dollars for all of these pieces of a launch you know in talking about dozens of emails two or three sales pages you know um follow-up sequences abandoned cart sequences like there's all of this stuff that can go into a really big launch and it's really easy for a client to look at that and say well i'm paying you you know thirty thousand dollars can you do you know can you throw in three more emails and as the launch goes along those needs pop up 
really consistently. And, and so you've got to be very protective of your boundaries saying, you know, this is the scope of the project. Of course you can throw in two or three emails, but it's very easy for two or three emails today to uh, also require a couple more tomorrow, or maybe can you just do this landing page really quickly? And uh, again, so that's really where it comes down to like being really strict with your boundaries or being okay with doing extra work. If you start to give on your boundaries. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the financial side of charging for launches, it's easy to become enamored by the the big, you know, the high price tags for some launch projects where we've talked to copywriters who charge 30k for launches or 50k or more or are taking a percentage on the back end and so it's really easy to be like, "Oh my gosh, you can make so much money in that space." But when you actually talk to a lot of those copywriters about what they're doing and the deliverables that are included and how much access they're giving to their clients. When you break it down, sometimes it's actually not its not worth it in the end if you look at what they're getting paid per hour or per deliverable. So I think just be careful with that. And um, the last thing I'll say too is just the cool part about launches, again, is that it's copy that your clients will use repeatedly because so many of them will launch twice a year, three times a year. Maybe it's an evergreen product you're working on. And they'll run the same copy with minor changes for years. I mean, it could be three years. It could be more than that. So when you're thinking about what you're charging for it, factor in, you know, the asset and how frequently they can use it and how much value that is per each launch with that copy that you're giving to them. Yeah, that's really good advice. Okay. So the last thing I want to bring up uh, that Christina was mentioning, and I think this is something that maybe a lot of copywriters don't think about enough. And that is the the belief that, you know, we need to have, uh, when we're talking to somebody, they need to believe certain things about their ability to do things or about the effectiveness of the product. And that all goes back to worldview, uh, you know, and, and so understanding where your customer is, what they believe today and how those beliefs need to shift in order to purchase a product really matters. And, and that in part should be driving the copy that they're receiving, you know, whether it's an email, you know, thinking about, um, you know, I've got to go from, you know, believing that, uh, let, let's take a, a, maybe a dumb example, but, you know, let's say that I want to lose five pounds and I have a belief that this product that I'm going to buy doesn't work, or I've tried something similar. Um, you know, I have to be able to, as a copywriter, overcome that belief in my customer to help them see that this product is, is going to work. And, um, way back in, uh, I think it was 2018, our very first, um, TCC IRL, Sam Woods gave a presentation about this. That's really good. It's in the underground all about how do you shift that belief? And I think he even talked about how, uh, he made an auto parts manufacturer, um, cry because of the, the belief shifting that he did in an email sequence. Anyway, um, it's something that we should be thinking more about where our customers are today and where they need to be. How do we shift those beliefs as we talk to them about, you know, how we solve their problems? I was going to shout out Sam Woods too. You beat me to it. So love Sam Woods. And I also, that lesson sunk in when Sam talked through those shifts in beliefs and how it's like, it's really baby steps too. It's not this giant leap from one belief to another. It's like just inching along. And the way he talks about it with email is just like, what does someone believe at the beginning when they first open an email? What do they believe? And what are they, what do you want them to believe by the end of that one individual email? And it might just be a micro shift, but then when the second email comes out, you're starting from a new belief that you've already shifted and you can shift it again. And so I think when you think about 
it's helped me think about emails and what we actually are doing with emails through that. So thank you, Sam Woods. Yeah. And going along with that, you know, oftentimes we think, well, people don't shift their worldview. We've heard the Eugene Schwartz thing where, you know, the market, you can't create a need in a market. But when we were talking with Marcus McNeil a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, you know, he talked about, you know, marketing very progressive ideas to a conservative audience and how they did that. And, you know, it kind of dawned on me, it, you know, worldviews can shift or you can you can bring people to believe certain things about uh, you know, their worldview and, and, um, you know, ideas that they might ultimately or, or initially, uh, reject by appealing to, you know, this belief shifting process and the things that, you know, they want to see in their life. So that's worth going back and revisiting to, um, the, the campaign that they did to legalize psychedelics in Denver. Yeah. I'm just, I was going to ask you a question, but then I, I knew you'd ask me the same question and I didn't want to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what, what beliefs have shifted for you even over the last year. I don't, I don't know if anything comes to mind because it's a big question, but I know for a fact, many of my beliefs have shifted over the last year. Um, even when you think that you are very clear in your beliefs, um, it's amazing how there can be these micro shifts over even just a short period of time. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that there are, you know, specifics that I can think of off the top of my head, but it's a, yeah, it's, that's tricky. But any marketing campaign is designed to do that. And, you know, if the end result is that it helps me, you know, solve a problem or do something better, then that's an, an awesome thing. And it's a superpower that we have as copywriters and we should, uh, you know, use it effectively to help our customers solve their problems. I remember when I was in uh, Ray Edwards mastermind a couple of years ago, he would talk a lot about beliefs and how, you know, he was really passionate about questioning the beliefs he felt most strongly about. Those are the ones he wanted to identify first and question why he was so attached to those particular beliefs. And so I think I, I like thinking about it that way. What am I attached to? And, and just kind of poking holes in those beliefs too. Yeah. I like that frame um, a lot because I think we do get attached to our own worldviews and uh, we're not always right. And it's, it's good to question that and to learn and to change. All right, let's go back to our interview with Christina and talk a little bit about human design. I want to hear more about human design. So you've mentioned it uh, in this conversation. I know you've mentioned it in the past. Um, it sounds fascinating. I'm less familiar with the concepts. Can you just teach us or share a couple of the key concepts or takeaways that we should know as as marketers, um, maybe if we're in the launch space, we should know it, or maybe just as copywriters, we should know it. Yeah, I'm not uh, a super expert on it. I know my human design. And once I sort of learned more about how I show up in human design, it helped a lot. So I'm a manifesting generator, um, which means I, if I put myself out there, I generate leads, I, I generate opportunities very easily. But I have to actually show up and do the work. Like if things just don't come to me, if I put myself out there, I generate opportunities. And a simple example is I, um, someone that I knew from a long time ago posted something random about like her dog or something. And I was like, oh, hey, cute dog. And then she was like, hey, are you still writing copy? I'm looking for a copywriter. And I hadn't talked to her in like two years. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. She's like, not now, but we'll, you know, we'll need one later. And I was like, great. She's on my radar screen. So that's sort of like the, the beauty of human design. But also knowing that for me, because of how my design is made up, I um, 
cannot make decisions or I should not make decisions from an excited state. Like I really need to make decisions from a very calm, balanced, grounded place. Um, if you're a reflector, you know, you shouldn't make decisions for 30 days. Like, you know, you need some more space to make decisions. So like knowing sort of the things about your design is really helpful to know like how not only you market yourself and how you show up and how you deliver content, but how you make your own decisions. I use it in a way that is supporting of what I do and not the bread and not like the, Oh, you know, I'm not someone that's like, Oh, it's mercury retrograde. I'm not going to do anything or I'm not going to, you know, do any technology because like we're in mercury retrograde, like a third of the year or something like you can't not do stuff, <laughs> you know, based on. <laughs> that actually sounds great though. Yeah, it does. Um, but you know, it's one of those where I'm aware I use it to, sub to, um, elevate what I'm already doing to support what I'm doing to give me insights, but it's not, it doesn't rule everything, but I'm fascinated by human design. I really, I have a friend who is a great human design, um, expert and she gives me lots of feedback when I'm asking questions. You know, she's a projector. So she really has to show up in a very different way than how I can show up. And that part's fascinating, but also there's not any human design (laughs) anyone who gets to just sit back and, and like things come to you. Like all of us have to show up and do the work. All of us have to sort of put in, um, the effort and, um, and be seen and do, and, and sort of ask, you just ask in different ways. So I don't know if there are human design experts out there and I got anything wrong, you can't just at me on Instagram, but I think it's something really fun to, to know when I'm working with clients. Well, what are some resources? Is there just a book I can read on human design? Is there a course on it if I want to learn more? Yeah, you can go. If you just Google human design, I think there's like um, a website where you can download your chart and it gives you a little bit of explanation. And then you can like upsell. I think it's like $39. You can get a more advanced chart and tells you a little bit more. You can find human design experts. Um, uh, My friend Sora Schilling's a really brilliant human design person, you know, and she does a lot around human design and marketing. There are great human design and marketing experts out there that actually combine the two. Um, if you search there, there are great ones out there. I don't, I think it's a rabbit hole. If you really love it, you can really do a lot of research around it that, and I really like gene keys as well. Um, I noticed I was starting to like spend a lot more time studying that. And then it was going to be like another rabbit. It was just going to be another reason for me to not do like prospecting or to not do the work that I'm meant to do. Uh, so for me, it could be a rabbit hole that uh, keeps me from actually making money because I'm, I'd rather learn something like that than do a Facebook live. <laughs> so I take as much as I need out of it. And then I sort of leave it to the experts for everything else. But yeah, I can, yeah, there's lots of really great resources out there. So you mentioned projector you mentioned manifester, you mentioned reflector. What are the other roles in human design for those of us who this is completely outside of our experience? I think Rob's a reflector for the record. They're really, really, really rare. Yeah. And what, well, and what do they do? Like, like, how do I know if I, I have no idea if I'm a reflector? Like, so I don't yeah. know them well enough to know that there are four there's manifester, there's generator, there's reflector, there's, um, projector and then there's like a manifesting generator um and um or maybe there's just 
manifester and the manifesting generator. I, when when I hear you say that, I'm like, I, I'm going back to that song, like um, oscillator generator, make a circuit with me. Do you remember that song? <laughs> I'm not... Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, but, I mean, there are things you can go and, and there's like lots of free resources out there. There are lots of books. I mean, it's one of those where it's really fun to sort of know, um, to know sort of how you relate in the world. I think one of my favorite things to look at is like if you, Sally Hogshead's got like the fascinate test is, and that's like how the world sees you. That's really fascinating test to take as well. Um, and, you know, it just gives you a little bit more insight the more you know yourself the better you can sort of show up in the world. Um, and, you know, I don't know about anyone else, but the more personal growth I do, the more business growth I do. So it's, I don't, yeah, I don't know how people don't do personal growth and have a business because it feels like it, they're, you know, they're so interconnected for me. And, and, and my clients are spiritual entrepreneurs. So they're the ones that are the healers and the light workers and the, um, the energy managers. And so they really, need me to to sort of know a little bit more about that side of the world. And what are you, Christina? The manifesting generator. When Christina said that the reflector, I think you said the reflector takes a month to like think about something. <laughs> I was like, I think that could be Rob. Because I mean, in a good way, like you ask yeah. questions, you want to like think about it and That's make totally good decisions. Yeah. So I, that just kicked in for me. But I don't yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I want to take the test or learn more because I think it is positive to learn more about how how you relate to the world. Like that, that can only benefit us in business and life. There are human design experts out there that are like poking their ears out because they're just like, you guys are destroying everything because I've probably got like a lot wrong, but um, it is really fascinating. And there's a lot of free resources out there. And again, it's just one of those. I get a lot wrong all the time. I know, me too. <laughs> me too. Um, you know, things like if you know, you know, about yourself, if you, you know, we talk a lot inside the think tank around lunar cycles, you know, for women, um, the more you know your energy, the more you know how you work, the more you know about um, how you show up in the world. It just makes your, it makes selling better. It makes empathy um, and connecting easier. And so, you know, it doesn't hurt to have all of that information. And it doesn't hurt to know a little bit more about your clients than just like, you know, their mission statement and, you know, what products they sell. Let's let's talk about energy. I mean, you've mentioned it in this conversation about managing energy during a launch. But I we also know that most people who launch anything, even if it's a simple launch, it's it's draining and we burn out and it just takes over our life, even when we're trying to be intentional about not not doing that. It just happens. And so how can we be better at managing our energy in our own launches? Or if it's easier to answer it, thinking about like, how can we help our clients manage their energy? Maybe we can speak to it from both sides. Yeah. So one of the things I do with my clients when it comes to launches, we include a self-care plan. So as we're mapping out, like when cart opens, cart closes, when the webinar is, we're building in, it's a little more difficult now with the so many things shut down, but like, when are you, you know, you know, schedule dates with your husband, schedule massages. When are you going out to the park? Like, what, you know, where do you go for grounding? How do you like to like rejuvenate? And we build those into the launch. So, you know, like the day that you're, you know, you've got your big 
sales presentation, you know, go out and go for a quick walk before you show up or go stand outside, you know, on grass barefoot, if it's possible, or take a shower, if, if that's how you sort of, you know, blow off the, the negative energy. So it's creating a self-care plan before the launch even starts. It's actually part of what, you know, send an email, you know, um, go for a hike. Um, so that's part of it. And also like knowing yourself well enough to know what energizes you and what drains you. So if you, you know, like I'm a really, um, I'm a night owl and a Rob, you're a morning person. So like for me, if I tried to create my launch or create my schedule around being a morning person, it would be a nightmare because it's just not where my energy is. My energy is at night. I thrive at night. And I honor that when it comes to the work that I do, and especially when it comes to clients. It's not always like if my clients, so right now I've got clients overseas in Israel and in um, the UK. And so I end up doing a lot of morning stuff, which just means I write late at night and they look at it in the morning. So I honor my own energy and also their their energy and like their timing as well. So you've got to sort of manage, you got to know sort of like when do your clients work, when do you work best and find a schedule that works. Um, for the launches, you know, like how, um, how do they handle stress? How do they prefer feedback? How do they, um, you know, how do they handle something that like really like pressure? And then you like you being really resilient emotionally to be able to handle it. I've had clients yell. I've had clients threaten me. I've had, they've had just had a bad webinar and it's all of a sudden my fault. And it's just like, okay, we're going to like, this is okay. We're going to re, you know, like I don't deserve it. They always apologize. But when things are super stressful, first time launchers, well, like yell, be like, ah, oh, it's your fault. My, you know, it's just like, you didn't follow my scripts. You weren't prepared. It's okay. You know, first time launchers, especially don't know what they're going into. Um, and it's really stressful when they're like, Yeah. Um, and I can hold a really solid space for them to sort of work out that energy and be like, okay, are we, are we ready? Can we move forward? This is what we do next. Um, and also be like, you can't talk to me like that. So we have conversations. Um, and I think that's one of the things like just the clients I work with are very emotional. Um, not in a bad way, but they're like, they're very much this is their life's work. This is their mission. So it's very like everything is compiles and it's really, really important. And they feel the pressure when something goes wrong. And, you know, sometimes I like that. And sometimes that's why I say I can't ever work with launches on launches again. Um, but like, how do you know how, if, if my client has a bad day, what can I do to support them? If their team, you know, if their team has a bad day or if something goes wrong, how can I show up and support them? Um, how can I, you know, show up and give feedback in a way that's really helpful? Um, so just like sort of knowing how much, like, um, we've got a client who, you know, she gives feedback to me in a very specific way that I don't particularly like, but that's how she does it. And so I just sort of, I'm like, okay, I, I get how she's doing it. And so I can like, take the ego out of it and be like, Oh, she's not doing it because it's something that I'm doing wrong. It's she's doing it because that's how she sort of communicates. Uh, I think it's not I, like, there's just a lot 
around like how I can support my clients and also hold my own boundaries in that sort of like energy management. Um, but so much of it is, is how do they, how do they have fun? How do they rejuvenate? How do they handle a bad situation? How, what do they get super excited about? Um, knowing those things and building that time into your launch is really, really helpful. And also like, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I can do a little bit of Reiki. I've got Reiki people in my world that I can refer them to. Massages are really great. Um, mindset work, journaling. So there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot to it when it comes to energy management. But also I work with people that are rarely aware of their energy. Maybe this is a similar question. And so maybe, but I feel like it's slightly different. It sounds like you give so much energy to your clients. And like you've mentioned, you hold space for them. Like they are launching is stressful. A lot of money is usually on the line. And so you are so great at even creating this energy management system for your clients and and supporting them. But also it I imagine that's really draining for you. And so I guess is it is it sustainable or like how can we make it sustainable? Because I know that you're many of us in the launch space can feel that way. And it's often why a lot of launch copywriters burn out because it's so intense and um, there's so much more needed in addition to the copy and the strategy. It's like you are oftentimes supporting someone else's emotions. And like you said, you had people yell at you and you've learned how to handle it. Well. <laughs> you learned how to handle it well. And I know you created boundaries, but what is a sustainable way for us to manage our clients' emotions and be service providers, but also take care of our own selves and create our own boundaries? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. For me, it is the more proactive I can be and the more I can lead the situation, the easier it is. So I know that when I show up as reactive or when I'm not prepared for something that could go wrong, um, or I haven't like made sure that everything is, is, um, not necessarily taken care of, like I'm, I'm, I've got my eye on everything that's going on. Um, I can control a lot of what happens or I can at least be able to respond like, like the example of my client who, you know, had this great webinar and then the sales piece was absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, like before she even got off the webinar, I had like a list of 10 things that we can do immediately to, to mitigate what happened. Like we can re-record it. We can, um, you know, I had an email sort of drafted up on what we could do. Like she, she's like, so when, so she got off the call, she was feeling bad. She got an email that said, Hey, this is, you know, like, Hey, no, this isn't the end of the world. This is what we can do. So that helped a whole lot because that took a lot of pressure off of her. So the more I am, um, proactive, the more organized I am, the more I show up as a leader and the expert and take that role, the easier it is for them to have those mistakes and feel okay with continuing on. So what we don't want is for the, for something to go wrong because launches never go as planned. Um, what we don't want is for something to go off track and then they, you know, our, our clients um, decide to, you know, quit or give up or go back to like something that doesn't feel authentic to them. To them. Um, and, and then that sort of doesn't help the situation at all either. Christina, I want to change the subject just a little bit. Um, when you were telling your story at the very beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that you have been exceptionally lucky in the work that's come your way and the clients that you've been able to connect with. And I suspect that it's not luck 
that you're doing something that actually creates the luck. You know, luck, I'm sure luck happens in a lot of cases, but I think most of the time we like to attribute to luck something that actually we did, um, you know, we're working at. So I'm wondering if you can identify some of the things that you do in your business that have made you lucky, that have put you in the right places to connect with the right people or have, you know, led you into communities or groups or projects or, you know, you know, opportunities, ideas, whatever, um, you know, what are you doing to be lucky? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, a lot of it is uh, going into communities and groups and masterminds and courses and being really active. So um, a lot of clients still today is, you know, as from a mastermind I was in eight years ago. And they turned out to be the first group of, of coaches that I, were, uh, that I worked on launches with. And as they grew and my, I grew, we, we grew together, which was really, really nice. Um, I've been in like really big programs, like 90 Day Gear, and was really, really active uh, and showed up to all of the calls and was active on the Facebook group. And I did it with intention because I was going to invest in that program. I wanted to, and they were going to be my ideal clients. I wanted to show up and offer um, my service and then, and then get clients from that. And I have, and I still do. Um, and you know, that was six years ago that I was in that program. So, um, a lot of around strategic partnerships, you know, joining bigger programs with the intention of getting clients, cause it's a good fit going to where my clients are and being a part of the conversation. Um, and then just relying on relationships, like putting it out there, to friends saying, Hey, I'm looking for a chance to speak to masterminds and uh, at retreats. Who do you know that could use a, a copywriter or a messaging strategist uh, to speak to your mastermind? I did that at the end of last year and immediately had two people say, Hey, I'm looking for someone. Can you talk next week? And, you know, it turned out to be like a, a really nice little paying uh, speech to someone's mastermind, then, you know, offered a lot of value. Um, that was unexpected, you know, unexpected because I just sort of put it out there and and people jumped at it. But also it's like, who do you know that? And, you know, when someone when they and they know a lot of people. So when someone else says to them, hey, I'm looking for someone for my mastermind, they can say, hey, I've got this friend and she's she'd be great. Um, so nothing beats relationships. Nothing beats. Um, I think that's part of the power of a mastermind um, and being part of active community and active in communities where your ideal clients are and being intentional with strategic alliances. That's how I got lucky. And also asking, putting myself out there and saying, Hey, who know, who do you know that part of manifesting? I think. So are there things that you wish you had done differently? Oh yeah. I mean, I wish I had niched down a little bit more and gotten really clear about who I work with. Um, which I didn't do until the very first think tank. I was like, oh, yes, spiritual entrepreneurs, launch strategist, uh, launch copywriter. Uh, I sort of like flowed uh, along and did websites and did Facebook ads and I was learning social media. So I was constantly being like, oh, look, they need something. I'm going to learn it and then go pitch. Or, or um, you know, I wasn't very focused and wasn't very uh, clear about what I can do and the outcomes I can bring. So I would have niched down sooner. But also, was I able to niche down sooner? I don't know. I mean, I kind of believe that everything happens for a reason at its own time. Um, I wish I had, um, 
And there, there were a lot of programs I invested in that I haven't even looked at. So maybe spend more money on coaching in, in community versus like buying a program that I had no intention. I love me a good sales page though. Give me a good sales page and I'm like, click the button, um, which is why uh, I shouldn't make decisions when I'm emotionally charged. So um, yeah, I mean, not a whole lot of regrets. So can you speak to your mindset change, your own mindset shift over maybe even over the last year since we've been working closely with you in the think tank and how it's shifted even more recently as you're kind of evolving your own identity beyond copywriter and beyond launch strategist and you're kind of embracing these new identities as more of a business coach or strategist. And I know you haven't necessarily landed on a a title, but your identity continues to evolve. And so how do you keep up with that mindset wise and what practices um, have you incorporated to help you as your mindset has changed? Yeah, a, a lot of it is around like just trusting the process and trusting that when when I find what I'm supposed to be doing, like it's a copywriting is not my thing. It's close and I'm getting there and I want to rush it. I want to be like, hey, you know, tell me what to do. Like, you know, I bit the sky, tell me what I'm supposed to do. But, you know, like trusting the process, trusting the opportunities that come in front of me. Uh, and the mindset around that is, you know, I have plenty of time to, you know, find that thing. I have plenty of opportunities. Um, I do a lot of journaling, a lot of meditating. Um, and then a lot of like looking outside of the industry for inspiration. I uh, love reading books about um, people doing the impossible. Uh, I love um I'm obsessed with Mount Everest. So I love anything that's mountain climbing um, and sort of looking to see like, what are, you know, I'm in a, a group called um, build your life resume and there's just people from all over the world in there and they're doing amazing things. So I get really great inspiration from them. And, you know, like I just sort of trust that I'm where I'm supposed to be and also keep looking forward. Um, I, I don't know that I have, the answers for when it comes to mindset. But if I have any advice around mindset, it is to not isolate yourself, which I tend to do, which is hard to do when you're in something like the think tank. But, uh, you know, the more connected I am to my clients, the more connected I am to my work, the more I talk about launching and why I do what I do, the easier it is to stay super inspired and the easier it is to stay excited and to pitch myself and to go out and talk about what I do and to be seen. And that sort of mindset is really helpful um, when I get out of my own way. We are going to ask you some lightning round questions, Christina, if you're game. (laughs) Oh yeah, let's do it. So Christina, do you prefer dawn or dusk? Dusk. Favorite day of the week? Wednesday. Interesting. Why Wednesday? Yeah, why? Why Wednesday? No idea. Just... Lightning. So yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Trust it. Place. Where, what is the place you most want to travel when we are able to travel again? I want to see Everest. That's my obsession. And you have plans, right? You are. You're doing. I, it I next do fall? have plans to go to base camp. Yes, um, but somewhere on the warmer side, I would also love to go back to Costa Rica or see like 
water that's that's turquoise because I don't believe it exists. Like I see all these pictures of the Caribbean and I was like, oh, that's fake. Like I just want to see really clear water, but I'm not a beach person. I'm much more of a of a mountain person. Okay, a couple more. Uh, favorite childhood TV show? I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So like um, Brady Bunch, what popped in my head was like, what is that show with the boarding school? Why would that pop up in my head? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it. But yeah, like, you know, old MacGyver shows, Golden Girls. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember watching a whole lot. Can't go wrong I mean, with like, Brady Bunch. I mean, I grew up when TV was like, we had three channels when we grew up. I remember getting MTV and thinking it was like the best day of my life was we got MTV and they actually showed videos. So favorite number. I feel like you would have a favorite number. Uh, I like 24. There's no, it it was my favorite hockey player. And it's just a number that's always stuck. It's not really a, um, a very magical number, but it's my favorite. And what does a person need to be happy in order to be happy? Well, I'll be easy and say dogs or cats. Um, to be happy, I think they need to have purpose. I think if you know your purpose and you know sort of um, what your mission is, I think that's happy. And you all listening cannot see uh, Christina on video like we can, but her dog, what, what kind of <laughs> dog is it? Her dog is so adorable and like sits right behind her on yeah, um, right so behind cute. her on the chair the entire time we're chatting. She's hogging the entire chair. She's a, a pit bull um, boxer mix. And then the other one is a um, is a mountain cur and she's on the couch. I mean, she's on like the bed. Yeah. But she, what she does is, yeah, uh, Sadie, I got her from the house across the street. So she, when they're, when their little boys are outside playing, she just stares and because um, she wants to go play with her little boys. She likes to stare out the window. That she's spoiled run. Last question, last lightning round question. Is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? Oh, no. It's so gross. I mean, I don't even like to How double many people dip are at this family. party? Who's okay. at the party? Really? I want to know that. Oh, my God. I, I, would totally, I would totally double dip. I mean, pre-COVID. I mean, like, <laughs> if you bite one side and then you flip the chip over and you bite the other side, maybe. <laughs> I give you think it could be strategic. Flipping the chip it, is perfectly respectable. Yep. Yes, I agree. Okay. Glad. Okay. Glad we covered that. So, Christina, why don't you share? Thank you for making it through the lightning round. Clearly, yes. like I need practice even pulling the questions, but um, can you just share what's coming up next for you and like what else you're excited about before we wrap? Yeah. Um, so, what's coming up next? So, I've got. Uh, a small group coaching program that I have done before that I really want to pick back up called Launch Circle, where we're launching all at the same time. Um, and that's a lot of fun because I love supporting people through launches, even if I'm not the one writing all of the copy and doing all of the work. Um, and then just writing more stories, getting more into storytelling, getting more into um, screenwriting, which has always sort of been my thing. And I don't know. I mean, I didn't really plan ahead because like, why would you plan ahead after last year? (laughs) So, um, you know, this year I'm looking forward to leaving the house, um, hugging people. That's what I've got planned ahead. Just not much. Just don't, don't Um, hug Rob. (laughs) Um, business wise. I can do a side um, hug. I'm okay. Okay. You got it. 
Um, Business-wise, it's um, support my clients, um, you know, talk about launching as much as I can uh, so that people learn to love launches because they really are so transformational. And like once you launch, you learn your voice, you find your voice, you find your confidence and watching someone go through that experience is really, really a lot of fun. Uh, so more launches, more empowering launches and I don't know, keep writing. That's what I do. Just write, write, write. That's it for our interview with Christina Shans. But before we go, let's recap a couple more things. So we talked a lot about different personality tests in this conversation. Is there any particular one beyond, you know, the love languages we talked about earlier is there any particular personality test that resonates with you, Rob? So uh, there's not really. I mean, you know, as I was thinking about this after we talked with Christina, you know, I know Myers-Briggs gets a lot of, of talk. A lot of people talk about their Enneagram numbers. Uh, Sally Hogshead's Fascinate profile and um, even even like the, the color, you know, are you red or blue? I can't remember what that one's called. Um, there's, there's, or in human design, like we talked about, like there's all of these different ways to look at personality. And I know uh, there's a lot of science that pushes back against them and saying, look, this stuff isn't really real. You know, it's the Barnum effect where stuff stays really general. And of course it applies to great big audiences. And so it feels personal, that kind of stuff. But I do think there's some usefulness in trying to understand character traits or, you know, thought processes or the way that we act, especially when we're thinking about the people that we're working with or the people that we're trying to attract to a particular product, um, just because it's, it's another frame or another way of looking at the worldview stuff that we were talking about the last time we broke in here in the podcast. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like tests like that. I like Myers-Briggs. For me, I don't lean too heavily on it, but I can see where if you can pull that into your process, and especially as a copywriter, and you can make that part of your process when you work with clients too, to help um, to help better connect to them and know how best they work and how you should interact with your clients, but also just how to best express who they are in the messaging. And you know, especially if you're working on their brand development, uh, personality tests could really be useful. So in some ways, I feel like I should probably consider which ones would be most helpful when I work with clients, even though I haven't added that. Um, and then it does attract certain clients too who love, you know, love to talk about or take those tests. It could be something that attracts them. Um, but it is interesting. Even my eight-year-old uh, Harper is <laughs> just learned about the world of tests and and these personality tests, and she's kind of already obsessed at age eight with figuring out what spirit animal she is and just like wanting to test everybody. And so there is this desire even at such a young age to identify and feel connected and learn about yourself and and feel that connection to something um, that helps illuminate a different side of your personality that just clearly doesn't really disappear over time. Exactly. And I, I mean, obviously they do have their limits. Um, it's not an exact comparison, but I worked for a company a uh, number of years ago, a couple decades ago, and the CEO got really hung up on this. Uh, it was kind of an IQ test, but not really, which was uh, supposed to like let us as employees know the jobs that we were 
you know, best suited for. And, um, you know, so they, they had everybody in the company take the test. And I remember there were a few people in my, um, in my group, uh, a couple of designers who tested and, you know, for whatever reason they tested, uh, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but the results came back that, you know, they were ideally suited to be security guards or, um, you know, line workers in the lunchroom or, or something you know, like kind of ridiculous. And it was really demoralizing for them, you know, to get that kind of feedback. And then to know that, you know, HR was talking about how this was kind of a baseline for who's going to get promoted or who's not. And so I do think that there are some limits The the funny thing about that test, though, is the CEO uh, took it and uh, I never heard what his exact score was, but um, my understanding was that he also got, you know, lower <laughs> rated, you know, security guard level or or whatever. And uh, after that happened, the test went away company wide. So, um, you know, funny story, I suppose, but there are limits to this stuff. It's fun to use. And if it gives you some additional information, some insight into the way that your client, or your customer functions, then use it. But uh, be careful because um, they're not always scientific. Yeah, that seems pretty messed up for a company yeah. culture to do that at all, of things not to do in your company as a business owner. And yeah, I think I think the part you know that you mentioned is you should be intentional about it. There should be a point whether you're doing it for yourself or for a client or for your company. There should be <laughs> some some um, it should be scientifically backed, and there should be a point to the doing that exercise, especially if you're going to spread it across your company. So Christina also talked about uh, rabbit holes and going down rabbit holes and how she has to avoid, yeah, specifically she was talking about, you know, avoiding the rabbit hole of human design because she could spend all of her time studying it and learning about it and whatever. And it just kind of piqued an idea in my head too, is that oftentimes rabbit holes are really good when we're doing research, when we're learning, when we're trying to figure stuff out that's going to help us in the business, but it can become a way to feed the resistance and keep us from doing our work. And I love the fact that Christina is able to identify that say actually I, I'm not going to do that because I've got to get some stuff done and so you know just being aware in in our days you know when are we chasing a rabbit down a hole for fun and for learning that's keeping us from doing the work and when are we um, actually doing it in a way that's going to support us um, just kind of got me thinking about that I you know something worth commenting on I love going down rabbit holes. I think it's just the key for me, at least, is to know when I've been down there too long and to pull myself out. And I usually know because I usually get depressed when I get to the bottom of a rabbit hole and I've been down there for too long and I just start to feel like I'm not myself. And so that's when I know, okay, you've been down this rabbit hole for too long. Like you've got to get back into the real world and pull yourself out. And it doesn't mean you have to not think about whatever topic for, you know, Christina with human design or for me with the odd topics I go into rabbit holes about, um, just to know you can still think about it. You can still work on it. You can still integrate it into your business or your life, but you just, you know, when is it actually harming you or harming your business or harming something else by staying down there in that rabbit hole? Yeah. And then last thing uh, that I wanted to mention is, you know, Christina talked about adding self-care as part of project management, which uh, I can't remember if we've mentioned this with anybody else in the past. We've definitely talked about self-care, but making it, you know, um, part of your project management, um, you know, building in time for, you know, sending a client, uh, you know, gift certificate for a massage or, you know, making sure that you're taking time off on the weekends during a big project like a launch, I think is a really good idea and is the kind of thing that can help us avoid the burnout that comes with those huge projects. 
I love that idea. I love that it's part of Christina's process and the energy management around launches is, is so important to her and to her clients. And I think that's something that we can all do for ourselves and for clients. And I know that's something that uh, you and I are trying to get better at as far as like working with other copywriters and whether it's in a think tank or in other programs that we run, because a lot of times we're talking about goal setting and it's around pushing, pushing, pushing and hitting all these goals. But oftentimes what a lot of copywriters need the most is actually to pull back a little bit and to not push so hard and to the biggest goal could be booking a weekend off from work or ending your day at a normal time. And it's not always about just hitting those financial goals or other goals, but it's about, yeah, just taking care of yourself. And I think that's a big part of the conversation for us as business owners. I'm glad to see more copywriters that we work with moving into that direction too and understand the importance of it. So I think I'm glad that Christina highlights that. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, it might be worth asking yourself, you know, what can I do to take care of myself a little bit better? Does it, is it something like, you know, getting out for a walk, you know, at lunchtime or, you know, getting up for a run? Is it you know, taking time off and actually having weekends? Is it, you know, going and getting a massage or, you know, hiking, you know, in the, in the forest, in the mountains or, or whatever, there are ways that we can do it that can be, um, that don't necessarily have to push all of our work out of the way, but help. Uh, reinvigorate us, re-energize us, and and help us love the work that we do just a little bit more. Yeah, for me today, it's a Friday, and this afternoon I am checking myself into a hotel nearby just to get some alone time, <laughs> which I never get to actually think and read. And so that is my self-care for this week and this month. Nice. I need to do that. That'll be good. I just went for a run this morning. That was my self-care, but I should have run to a hotel maybe. <laughs> <laughs> run to a hotel and check in. Yes. So we want to thank Christina Shans for joining us to talk about her business, to talk about launching and human design and all of the things that she shared. If you want to connect with Christina, check her out on Instagram. She's also on Facebook. You can find her in all of the Copywriter Club groups or visit her website, which is launchwithease.com. That's all one word, launchwithease.com. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave a review of the show. And don't forget to visit copywriterthinktank.com to find out more about this business-changing, life-changing mastermind group. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better, copy and make more money.